From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and we've got an awesome guest here for episode 22. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Lumberland Baseball. They make the Bat Mug, which is a perfect gift for any player, coach, parent, or diehard fan. With the Bat Mug, they've hollowed out the barrel of the bat and created a mug that holds 12 ounces of hot or cold beverages. They also have new 16 and 22 ounce offerings that have become very popular as well. You can customize these with names, colors, text, logos, photographs, and really create a unique personalized gift or souvenir. I've given these away several times myself as gifts, and they're always a hit. Uh, they're officially licensed product of the Major League Baseball Players Association as well, so they have designs available for every player and team. Drink straight from the barrel all year long with the Lumberland Bat Mug, which is the official mug of America's pastime. They're 100% handmade in the U.S., and you can design them exactly however you'd like. Customize yours today and get 10% off your order when you enter the coupon code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout. Just head to lumberlend.com. Again, that's L-U-M-B-E-R-L-E-N-D.com and design your bat mug today. Use the coupon code CRESSY to get 10% off. Today's guest is a starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. He grew up in Calgary and was drafted 28th overall in the 2015 Major League Baseball Draft. He quickly moved through the minor leagues and made his major league debut at age 20 in 2018. At the time of his debut in 2019, he was the youngest pitcher in the National League and went on to be selected to the National League All-Star team in 2019. Between 2018 and 2019, he set a major league baseball rookie record with eight consecutive starts with one earned run or fewer allowed. He met up with CSP this past offseason as he came back from a shoulder injury and we're excited to welcome to the show Mike Soroka. All right, welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. This is uh, it's fun. I've listened to a few, and you, you sound like a real natural on here. I'm trying. I'm trying. And, you know, it's funny. I feel like we've probably had about 50 conversations over the course of maybe the past 10 months, you know, throughout off season that would have made great podcasts. And if we had recorded them, it would have been great. And instead they just became like things that I'm learning from a, a 20 slash 21 year old. So, um, <laughs> so I want to, I want to ask you some questions. So what I think is really interesting about you is not just, you know, that you got to the big leagues really, really quickly, or, you know, that you're, you're thriving the way you are at age 21, but I'm also, uh, you know, pretty sure that a lot of people don't realize that you were, you know, a guy that that started in Canada. You were you were a hockey player, right? Yeah, yeah, I was until so, I was about thirteen or fourteen. So, talk talk to me a little about like baseball in Canada. Like, what makes a kid from Calgary, you know, into a you know a first day pick in the draft? Um, and and you know, also speak to kind of like the challenges of weather in in Canada. Like, was that a blessing? Was it a burden? How did you view it? Yeah, honestly, I think it was kind of a blessing for me. Mm -hmm. um you know hockey was something for me that I always loved when I was a kid uh but once it got pretty serious when you know you're 10 11 12 which is the way baseball is down in the southern states mm -hmm. um you know I, I didn't have that pressure playing baseball that a lot of kids did um and not to say I did in, in hockey um but it was kind of one of those situations where if you wanted to be good you had to be at you had to be at the rink every day 
You know, yeah. you didn't have didn't have a choice. I couldn't I couldn't play school sports anymore. I couldn't do any of that. It was all hockey, hockey, hockey. And uh, I still love the sport, um, but I just didn't love the practice. Um, I didn't love to be there every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of found with baseball is that I never I never got that way. I yeah. never got to the point where I didn't want to go to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if it was you know a fielding fielding conditioning practice, I was excited to go. Um, no matter what it was with baseball, I was happy. And so I, I kind of just took that route and, uh, we're lucky with a couple of big indoor facilities in Calgary. Um, got to know those owners pretty well and, uh, spent a lot of time inside just mm-hmm. screwing around really. Um, yeah. whether it was at the cages, uh, throwing bullpens into a net, mm-hmm. um, little things like that, that, that just go a long ways, uh, when it goes into just having fun with it. Absolutely. Um, so I mean, we're lucky as well with the uh, uh, national team program. Um, Baseball Canada does a really, really good job of identifying um, from the provincial programs and then also making sure that guys get opportunities to be seen. Um, You know, I I was lucky to be able to come down uh, with the junior team and pitch against professional talent when I was 16. Um, I got my brains beat in. Um, it was, I mean, you're completely overmatched. Mm -hmm. I was 16 years old throwing low mid eighties. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I got hit hard. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of that, that was that first time that I'd ever been in that situation to where I'm totally overmatched. Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of gave me a good perspective of how far, how far it is to go, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think over the next couple of years, obviously Velo, Velo went up about 10 miles an hour, mm-hmm. uh, which made it a little easier, but I found I hit that learning curve for pitching a little earlier than a lot of, a lot of kids would have. Yeah. Do you find, uh, give me a thought when you were, when you were that 16 year old pitching in the low eighties, what, what, what was your frame like, uh, compared to what it is now? Yeah, I think I just, I just grew in height. Yeah. Um, I think entering the ninth grade, I was about five foot six. 160 pounds. Um, and I actually lost weight when I grew, I grew about eight inches that year and I ended up about six, two, but 140 pounds, real, real lanky. Um, you know, really uncoordinated when it came to my feet. Um, I was always fairly coordinated with my hands, hand, eye and stuff like that. Um, but no, it was, it was an ugly, ugly sight for a while on the, on the athletic terms. Um, but, you know, I, it's just once that happened and I realized, you know, well, I got to throw harder than, uh, you know, food, lots of food, the eat everything program and uh, get in the weight room. That's when I first kind of got in there and, and we were with a football football coach. But at that point, you know that um, setting a base is, is what needs to happen when you're whatever I was, 15, 15 yeah. years old um, yeah. and managed to set a really good base. Exactly. And I, I don't think athletes appreciate that, like how much just sheer calories it takes when you're 6'2", 140 to, to put on, you know, I mean, you're well over 200 pounds now, like to actually put that 70 plus pounds on, there's just a lot of nutrition that needs to go into that. And I think we often hear, you know, like high school kids say, I eat all the time, I eat so much. And then you actually like see it or you have them write it down on paper and it's not nearly that much. But it takes a lot of sustenance to get to that point. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think knowing what I know now, I would have done it a little differently as far mm-hmm. as food timing and all yeah. that kind of things. 
but yeah, it was, it was little things like, uh, the fads of trying to wake up at two in the morning and put down a protein shake and go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, little things like that, that I did just because it was, um, you know, it was something that I really needed to do. And, and, um, you know, even jokingly got made fun of at school for carrying around one of those big lunch boxes. And, um, I was eating in every single class, uh, no mm-hmm. matter what it was, whether it was PB and J or mm-hmm. fruit snacks or whatever, you know, it was anything I could eat, uh, I was eating. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was, it was kind of fun because I could kind of eat everything. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have to worry. I could, I could stop at our, our drive-in spot on the way home from our lifts and mm-hmm. have two triple burgers and not worry about it. So uh, uh, it's a little different focus now, but yeah. um, no, it was, it was incredible. Well, I think we, we also live in an era where, uh, you know, I think social media does this. You always kind of like, you know, you can put any Instagram filter on to, to put your best foot forward and all this. And what we realize is there's a lot of kids out there who, who never have to embrace challenges or failure, right? Like you talked about the benefits of going and getting hit around against, you know, professional caliber players when you, when you traveled south with Team Canada. You talked about like embracing the challenge of, of crushing calories. And I even know like, you know, kind of when we first connected after your shoulder injury last year, like you, you embrace that injury as a learning experience. Has that yeah. gro- growth mindset, has that always been you? Was that something that, that you feel like you've acquired? You know, how, how did that come about? Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's actually a good one. Um, you know, to me, I think it was being able to look at reality, mm-hmm. um, and part of that was my dad being able to kind of look at things and say, "This is this is no longer working, so mm-hmm. try something else." You know. Yeah. Um, and one of those things was, yeah, it was being in the weight room and putting on weight and putting on size. I worked for a lot of years when I was fifteen to fifteen to eighteen when I needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after a certain point, it, it wasn't helping me on the mound anymore. And ultimately at the end of the day, my job is to throw zeros. So yeah. uh, it didn't matter what I was doing in the weight room. If it, if it was hurting me on the mound, um, then it, it wasn't worth it. So, uh, a lot of those things, yeah, like nutrition and, and, uh, injury, um, you learn, you learn what you can and cannot do. So I feel like just for me, if I wasn't moving in the right direction, then it was all wasted time. Absolutely. So here, here's a question for you. So you were you were a big leaguer at 20. Um, that's that's insanely fast. Obviously, in that 2015 draft, you were the fifth high school pitcher taken, the first to the big leagues. You were the 14th high school player taken overall, and also the first to the big leagues. You know, I was just ahead of guys like Colby Allard and Josh Naylor and Kyle Tucker. So I'm curious to get your take. What made you a big leaguer so quickly? You know, I'm sure it's multifactorial, but what in your <laughs> mind stands out the most? Yeah, obviously, um, first, I was thankful to be in an organization that pushed us, mm-hmm. um, you know, because a lot of those guys that made it quickly are with the Braves. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that goes into them being in a rebuild um, yeah. and obviously just giving us the, the reality that, you know, if you pitch and you can compete at that level, you're going you're gonna to do that. Uh, we have no, we don't check IDs. We don't hold guys back for their first season just because Mm -hmm. um there was no traditions like that and i think Mm -hmm. that helped us a lot in the confidence department to say all right go out there that ball's yours um you're going to be given whatever 100 pitches and go show what you can do so i Mm -hmm. feel like just kind of being able to let go and play the game uh was big for us but um and the the competition Mm -hmm. um 
you know, at first you, you look around and you see all the, all the high picks, all the, uh, all the other bonus babies. I mean, we were full of them, um, from trades and all that kind of stuff. And then we had a couple of thick drafts for a couple of years. Um, and you look at the upper levels of our minor leagues right now and it's stacked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like at first you look at that and you, you see, wow, mm-hmm. you know, do I, do I really have a shot here? And then you kind of say, you know, this is the way it is. And if I'm going to compete and I'm going to, I'm going to push through it. This is ultimately going to make me better because it's going to bring out the best in all of us. Absolutely. Um, so I feel like that's that's one thing that's pushed me, and I have never hit that point that I've arrived. You know, because there's always been someone next to me working as hard um, or harder uh, to be at the same or or a better level. That's awesome. Never get comfortable. What about the actual like the the skill of baseball? Is it is it something? Is it fastball command? Is it the ability to to effectively command four different pitches at a high level? Like what what do you think differentiates you and um, you know has made you successful? Not just to get to the big leagues, but obviously to to put up some some special numbers that made you an all star at twenty one. Yeah, I think uh, everybody's going to say fastball command. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, that, that's come a long ways in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been able to throw strikes, mm-hmm. um, but throwing strikes doesn't necessarily get outs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just having having a better idea of what you're doing, uh, OO versus O2 versus 2-1. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, limiting damage this year was was massive with putting being able to put a ball on a corner 2-1. To where you either get that no swing or the weak contact. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're always challenging, and, and you do sometimes, you have to do that. Um, but if you're always hopping in there, 2-0, here it is, hit it. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys, like right now, Anthony Rendon's going to hit that ball. He's yep. going to hit that ball out. Freddie Freeman's going to hit that ball hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that happens more often than not. So um, just realizing how much of a difference that makes just to be able to have an idea of the zone um, mm-hmm. and being able to have smaller misses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's gone a long ways for me. And, and without that, uh, nothing else would matter. Absolutely. Um, you know, speaking to the delivery, I'm, I'm always intrigued about, you know, various deliveries. And, you know, I put up like an Instagram post a while back of the guys throwing this, this past off season where you had like, you know, Brad Hand and Steve Ciszek side by side with the most, <laughs> yeah. you know, probably like 175 combined, you know, big league saves and, completely different and to be honest I, I probably could have thrown your delivery in there as well in the way that it's it's obviously unique you know pitching is all about putting yourself in the right positions and you know effectively leveraging gravity to throw downhill and I think there are a lot of people that would look at your delivery and say that it's I don't know maybe high maintenance because you have a little bit of kind of like a backward lean that effectively takes you away from the plate but it's super repeatable it tunnels well you throw a bunch of different pitches at you know elite velocities you know I'm curious, you know, what would your response to be that? And, and how many coaches have tried to coach, you know, that level of different out of you over the years? Yeah, I think coming up in, in little league right away, um, I was told that my arm angle was too low. It was too low. It was too low. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, obviously from throwing from the outfield and little things like that, yeah, you want to get on top, you want to be able to backspin the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just never where it felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was lucky to be able to be with a couple of pitching coaches that have been there before. Uh, Jim Lawson being one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he pitched in the uh, Oakland Athletics uh, organization, and then Chris Re- Chris Reitzma, another one who was yep. a seven or eight year big leaguer. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to understand that a unique delivery is also deception, 
And you need some of that in the big leagues to be able to get out uh, consistently because you're going to have days when you're not, your stuff's not there. Uh, what's going to get you through is a little deception and, and difference. Um, because ultimately, if you're Iron Mike out there and they see yeah. the ball, it doesn't matter how hard, uh, where you put it, it's it's going to get teed off on. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm thankful that I was allowed to be my own person mm-hmm. and kind of be able to figure things out on my own. Yeah. Um, you know, and have small cues like, yeah, you need to you need to be able to load your backside a little more. You know, mm-hmm. stay over the rubber. The typical pitching cues like that. But I was never, I was never. Uh, sat in front of anything to make, you know, yeah. this is how your arm action should look. You got to yep. change this and that. It was never, it was never like that because ultimately it's not going to be the same if it's not, it's not comfortable to you. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I, you get asked all the time and I'm sure a lot of other guys do with, yeah. with different pitches. And it's like, you know, how does your, how does your sinker do that? What do you throw? And it's a traditional two seam fastball. That's yeah. exactly what I throw. Um, and then I feel like what makes it move is just its natural spin axis and angle that it comes out of my hand. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I do not have is extension. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at track man, it's, it's that's way down mm-hmm. um, when you're talking about the averages. But that also means that I'm, I'm releasing the ball at a higher, <laughs> excuse me, higher angle. Yep. Um, and it's what allows me to, for my arm speed to be, you know, you get that quick snap from behind my ear mm-hmm. and that's why when i hear you know what do these guys see and they, they just don't quite seem to be able to pick it up when i'm staying closed when i'm when i'm on my backside yeah um and that's to me what's most important yeah and you know you, you kind of like hinted at uh, i call it a brian kaplan ism he talks about don't don't coach the different out of somebody you know it's whatever you're you're like a, a unique casserole of a lot of different factors that make you successful but with that said, are there are there specific checkpoints that you look for in your delivery, right? Whether it's feeling them in real time, you know, in the bullpen before a game, or if you've had a tough outing and you go back out and you watch a video, are there are there pitfalls that you get into that you you identify, or is it something that it could be, you know, something different each time out? Yeah, I have a couple of big ones, um, and you know, one of them one of them was said another way in another one of your podcasts with Blake Trinan um, was not rushing to create arm speed, meaning that, you know, that front foot's got to get down before you accelerate towards the plate. Um, you know, that was, that was always big for me. Um, because, you know, I'd be nice and smooth in the bullpen because I wouldn't be rushed. I wouldn't be, um, trying so hard to throw hard and make pitches. Uh, and I get out there in the first and I'd be, I'd be jumping towards the plate. I'd be, I'd be too excited to throw the baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to be able to kind of take a deep breath, relax, let myself load into my back leg, um, and let that front foot get down before I accelerate. Um, that's, that's everything for me. Um, and, and a lot of it goes off field too. So if I get, um, you know, two straight misses down on the way with a fastball, uh, glove side, you know, likely flying open. Yeah. Um, with the same thing with a, a sinker down and into a righty, I really got to stay on that on that back side to make sure I'm closed uh, to kind of drive it in there as opposed to whip it in there or throw it in there. Um, and these are just small little, little feel terminologies that I've come up with to be able to, to kind of cue myself into my delivery. 
Well, I think it's huge. I remember talking to Kurt Schilling back in like 2009, I bet it was. And he was speaking to some of our minor league guys and he talked a lot about like, Hey, don't, don't be that guy that needs to figure it out between starts or after you've given up, you know, a six spot in the first inning, you need to figure it out after like the, the first fastball that you left, you know, middle that got pounded. Like yeah. you need to be able to correct on the fly. Is that something that's changed for you? Like, have you done that well, like throughout your career? Or is it something where you really needed to struggle to have to come up with those strategies on the fly? Yeah. Struggle. The struggle is where you learn everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that's kind of cliche, but yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you don't have those bad innings where everything goes wrong, mm-hmm. uh, you're never, you're never going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, a lot of it's just experience, yeah. um, and being able to be in those situations and learn from them. But, um, yeah, definitely. Instead of having two bad outings in a row where you can't figure it out, maybe you have a bad inning, uh, or a bad couple of batters and you, you, you nip it in the butt right there. Yeah. Um, I think that's what makes an elite pitcher. Um, and so consistent um, because the best in the game have those innings where they just can't seem to kind of find it, but they snap it into place in their next inning or, or, you know, it's right away. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's something that you learn. That's something that you're being able to cue. And, and for me, it's not necessarily uh, all mechanics based. It's, it's what I'm trying to do in my head. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I get frustrated with giving up, too many bloopers and too many uh, ground balls through the hole. Um, you know, I try and do everything myself and I'm trying to be too perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them are mental adjustments. And, and I know that's kind of hard to, to think because there's no real way of explaining what that does for you mechanically. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it frees me up. And if I'm in the right mental state of mind, every pitch, regardless of what's happening behind me, uh, I'm going to execute a good pitch. Absolutely. And you, you spoke to the two seam like a little bit and you're a two seam slider change up and four seam guy. And you know, you're at, at 21, you're throwing righty on righty change ups. You're throwing all four of those pitches in, in full counts. Like there's obviously a, 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 an ability to manipulate the baseball at a high level. Was that something you've always had? Like was the, was the movement, you know, of all of those pitches or the, I guess the profile of all those pitches, was it that good in high school or was it something that really optimized when you had better access to, you know, all the analytic stuff, a lot of the video stuff and just feedback from, from better hitters? Like, or, or was it natural for you? Um, you know, I think as far as the sinker goes, it was fairly natural. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely little tweaks that I've made, um, such as angle and, and um, you know, release point was was one big one for me mm-hmm. um because if i get down i get on the side of it it yeah. becomes just more of a traditional two seam and uh, i tend to leave that over the plate and it gets hit but mm-hmm. um the one that i've always had uh was my breaking ball actually mm-hmm. <clears throat> for a long time i came up with it and it was big kind of a sideways curveball. it okay. was 78 to 81 mm-hmm. um i never had a problem spinning it um, but the problem was always spin axis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually something that I've been able to tweak in the last year or so um, to be able to alter my grip just a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, all it was was rotating the baseball in my hand mm-hmm. on on the grip to be able to put it in the best situation or best axis possible to spin mm-hmm. down. Okay. Um, because ideally, I don't really have one breaking ball that's, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pick a couple different ones to depending on the hitter you know some hitters are um they're better at seeing the one that's a little smaller and a little 
little more side to side, but they can't hit the one that goes straight down. Yeah. Um, so those are little things that, yeah, I guess, I guess I've been able to, to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I credit those to messing around with, with wiffle balls. That was just um, going to, that was my next question. Yeah. Know, yeah. I mean, there's start? nothing wrong with that. And I, I know some people will be afraid of that. Um, you know, it's probably, they say, Oh, not good. You're going to mess things up, but uh, really, everything it does, and the one I loved was a blitz ball, mm-hmm. um, and that's it because it amplifies everything that you're doing in your delivery. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're really on top of it and you get through it, you get that angle and rise mm-hmm. um, that we get from some of our quote rise ball guys. You know, yeah. the Craig Kimbrell action. Yeah. Um, but and then it it goes the same way with sliders and curveballs. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows you exactly what you're doing. Uh, on a bigger scale, um, and you just mess around with it and find it. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I always understood how to make the ball move a certain way, um, probably in thanks because of that. Yeah, and you know that really, to be honest, it it parallels a lot of what Alan, Adam Ottavino said on an earlier podcast, where he talks about always like playing games of how to spin a curveball when he was younger with his dad. It wasn't go out and throw fifty of them in a game. It was a lot of like. And he's a northeastern guy too, so you know he was he was doing yeah. this in New York City growing up. And um, we have a, a podcast on when kids should throw curveballs. That's one of our popular ones. And the gist is that they're really not any more stressful when thrown no. correct, correctly than a, a fastball or any other pitch. So um, definitely worth playing around if you have a, a more advanced delivery at a young age. And it sounds like that was something that you had sorted out and were a good fit for. Yeah, hundred percent. It was uh, like I said, it, that was always fun for me to was be able to see the ball move. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to take my, our recycling bin outside, put it in the, in the backyard and throw wiffle balls and tennis balls at it, pretend mm-hmm. it was a strike zone or a batter. Yeah. Um, you know, that was always, that was always my fun with pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to understand how a ball moves and how you spin a baseball, mm-hmm. um, that, that was, that was massive for me. And I, I didn't realize at the time I, I didn't do it with the mind frame of getting better. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't do it as a as a just because i had to i did it because that was fun to me and that's what i wanted to do that's interesting so there was a a great um podcast tim ferris did with maria sharapova and and sharapova talked about being this you know really really talented tennis player at ages four or five and she actually talks about how one of the things that she thinks set her up for failure is that she didn't mind the boredom because she she appreciated it she could she could tolerate hitting a ball against the wall for hours and hours because to her it was fun um it sounds like there's a little bit of that like there are a lot of like really high caliber athletes and and pitchers out there who spend a lot of time throwing a ball against the wall or into a bucket or you know playing catch by themselves effectively yeah yeah no i exactly and I, i did that with hockey too uh, I was a goalie, so I never got a chance to put this into use. But uh, my dad left the basement unfinished, and we had a uh, we had a hockey net down there, and I used to have pucks down there, and I, I would uh, you know shoot. I would shoot all day. Um, <laughs> so whenever it came around to being able to play out uh, one day a year, um, you know, I was always kind of surprising people that I had a decent shot. Um, and but it was it was little things like that. Like I said, uh, I. I will always do that. And I, I even get made fun of today on our team because if it was up to me, I would hit BP every single day. <laughs> and I will hit five or six rounds of it because I love it. Absolutely. You know, I, I will hit T, I will do soft toss, I will do everything in preparation for that. Um, 
because yeah, for me right now, that's, that's the most fun part about my day after throwing. Um, you know, what else do I have to do? I have to obviously get in the weight room or, um, do my recovery stuff, but you know, I get to hit BP today. <laughs> I can't beat that. And, no, exactly. And, and it's little things, you know, I, I never, I never dreaded PFP work. Um, you know, cause I always tried to be an athlete with it. Um, when you're flipping double plays, when you realize how big that, that becomes in a game, um, why not try and make a game speed and have fun with yourself out there? Um, yeah. that was always, that was always easy for me. So I, I feel like that transferred really quickly. Absolutely. So, uh, here's a question for you. You talked about, you know, kind of what makes a good, you know, turbo sinker, you know, when you're, you're basically in, in better positions to command the two seam and to, to do what you want with it. Does your approach change dramatically when you go from that two seam to the four seam where, you know, the intentions, the spin rate are, are different or for you is a fastball, a fastball? Um, they're slightly different. Um, you know, I just kind of some cues that I'm, I'm trying to make sure I do a little better. Um, I, both of them, I'm really trying to get off my index finger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know a lot of people think that you're putting pressure on, uh, your middle finger. You're trying to get it off the inside of your middle finger to make it spin sideways. Um, but for me, I, I'm not driving the baseball with either of them if they're coming off my middle finger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means I'm, I'm coming off a little early and I'm, I'm not really reaching to that last, last part. Um, so for me, depending on what I, where I'm going with it, uh, mm-hmm. it changes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm, oh, oh, um, you know, I'm trying to get one in there. I might look towards the middle of the plate and, mm-hmm. uh, try and get on top of something to make sure whether I miss over the plate or on the corner that the ball is moving downwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you're rarely going to get hurt too badly. Um, if you're over the plate, but the ball's moving down, mm-hmm. um, where you get hurt is even if I was to throw it in the middle of the plate and the, it, it rode out to the side because that's when the lefties are going to feast on that ball out over the plate all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but for four seam for me this year, um, that's something that I worked on with cap and being able to kind of look at things on Rapsodo mm-hmm. and look at release point, um, like I said, I, for any of my pitches, I don't think I've ever had an issue spinning the baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people think that a, a sinker is always a low spin pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had never had a problem spinning the four-seam fastball, but it always ended up on a tilted axis. Yep. So it didn't quite get that ride that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to try and kind of emulate that spin, try and get behind it a little better, mm-hmm. um, has actually been able to take off for me and, and separate the two. Absolutely. Um, you look at so many of the good pitchers now today, they have two pitches that look exactly the same mm-hmm. or more and yep. they just, they separate. Yeah. Um, so if I can throw two fastballs at similar velocities, the four seems a little harder. Um, mm-hmm. but essentially one goes the complete other direction. Um, mm-hmm. that's when it gets really tough for hitters because now they can't just sit on a speed. They kind of have to pick a location as well. Absolutely. So this is interesting. It actually leads to my next question. So last year, uh, your agent, Mark Pieper, put us in touch. That was probably June or so. I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. But so he reached out. We, we texted, talked, emailed back and forth. And, and I sent you my Sturdy Shoulders product. And then we met up, I want to say, in August or so uh, down in Florida while you, were, while you were doing your rehab in Orlando. And what was interesting is you rolled in and you had gone through 
all seven plus hours of that product. You had taken notes and you rolled in. I remember you were like, I think I figured out a lot of my own stuff, but it'll be good for you to verify it. Like, <laughs> yeah. You had already gotten to work. So like 21 year olds don't do that, right? Most 21 year olds out here, like you're begging them to get out of bed uh, in time to be on time to whatever they're going to do. You know what I mean? They're, they're procrastinating all these appointments, you know, that they have, whether they're, you know, the meetings with coaches or, you know, school assignments in college, and here you are like blowing products out of the water that are probably more intended for, for athletic trainers that are 20 years older than you and have a, a formal background in this. And then, so building on that, like when we first met up this off season, you basically gave me like a true media tutorial. Like, you know, that thing inside and out on another <laughs> level, like you could teach a college course on it. So like, if you're well, how, how are you this well-versed on the analytics side of the game at such a young age? Is that a curiosity that you've always had? Did it evolve because of the organization you were in and recognizing what a difference that stuff has made for your success? Um, <laughs> well, first, I, I wouldn't say I understood absolutely everything that was taught <laughs> in, the, in the Sturdy Shoulder Solutions, uh, <laughs> um, but it's a curiosity, yeah. and I've always kind of had that to something that I, I wanted to know more of. You know, I, I, I never... I hate sitting there and I'm that person at dinner when we're talking about something. Well, I thought it was this or I thought I'm searching that up. I'm looking it up on Google right away. Um, and I, I just can't, I can't go without knowing something. Yeah. Um, so for me, when, when something's talked about as much as it is today, like, um, you know, analytics or injuries, uh, I want to know more. And, you know, one, one of the things to me when I got sent down to rehab last year was, um, why I was hurt because mm -hmm. essentially a, a subscap injury is um, not something that you see from younger pitchers and especially younger pitchers that didn't throw a ton when they were young. Mm -hmm. um, it's more of a, a more of an older older veteran injury. I know I know John Smoltz had trouble with it later later in his career, um, but to me that was that was troubling. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, why why do I have this? Um, if I really only have X amount of innings under my belt and I'm 20 years old. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it was wanting to know what was causing it. And I couldn't be that person that gets the diagnosis as a traditional, uh, oh, it's shoulder impingement, you know, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's not what they said. Once it, once it came around, it was okay, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't be that person just to take the diagnosis and blindly do my rehab work because Ultimately, if you're not committed into what you're doing, you're not going to do a good job doing it. Yeah, you want to be an advocate um, for yourself, you know. Yeah, and I, that's that's what it went into once I understood exactly how I was doing. And credit to our medical staff, everything everything in my rehab was on par. I mean, it was it was perfect. But that's what allowed me to show up every single day and be completely invested in what I was doing that day. Um, and you know, that, that goes, that goes into a lot of other things, whether it's recovery work now, uh, weight room work, um, being completely committed to what I'm doing that day has been, um, amazing and keeping me a healthy and be refreshed. Yeah. Um, I never, I never feel like I'm showing up to do some eyewash, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it's always purposeful and, uh, that that goes in analytics as well. When I had some time down, I got I got a chance to really look into true media and um, narrow in some whatever. You know, mm -hmm. if it was I want to go look at Max Scherzer's pitches, I want to go um, 
see what this spin axis or spin was on on these pitches and and what makes it so different and so good mm -hmm. uh, i could do that on him sale whoever you want and mm -hmm. uh you know that was that was a lot of fun for uh essentially just wasting time absolutely yeah i was gonna say uh one of the things you need after a long-term rehab is to find a hobby. So if that's a, if that's a way to distract you and keep the time, you know, going fast, it, it definitely helps. Um, so here's a question for, I know that you did an interview a while back about, um, just like how your approach to different pitches had changed when you went from lower level of minor leagues to the big league baseball. Um, and yeah. it, it was one of the more like impressive interviews I've ever seen. You could talk about everything that changed on each one. How have you evolved on the whole since going to the big leagues? What, what, what were the biggest adjustments, you know, that you see, you know, great, given that you started the year in AAA this year and spent time there last year, how is AAA different from the big leagues as a pitcher? Um, well, now that they have the, the, the big league ball in triple, yeah, it's true. Good point. Um, it's not, not too, too much different anymore. Yeah. There's lots, um, lots of homers in both places. <laughs> yeah. And I think one thing that you got to realize and, and some guys struggle with in triple a is that a lot of those guys there have spent a, a lot of time in the big leagues yeah. and they're still very good lineups. And I think that gets lost sometimes as people assume the triple A is this completely, um, uh, inferior level to the big leagues. Yeah. Uh, which it, it is a different, it's a different beast. Um, but you really got to do your job when you only have a thousand people in the stands on a Wednesday in AAA mm -hmm. um, to be able to come with your best stuff. Um, but as far as what adjustments I made to be as, um, to be where I am today, I think the biggest one I made was in uh, AA. Mm hmm um, I was very lucky. Our, our pitching coach, who's now our minor league pitching coordinator, Derek Lewis, um, kind of set me a little straighter onto who I am and who I could be. Um, obviously, with having a sinker uh, and being primarily a sinker guy, um, you get that label as, you know, just a sinker guy. And traditionally, that's a guy that doesn't throw all that hard. Um, you're putting the ball at the bottom of the zone and you're pitching to contact. Mm -hmm. And that's never something that I was always happy doing. I didn't have fun, um, you know, giving in. Um, so I think a lot of the adjustments that I made were realizing that, okay, yeah, my sinker um, is probably my best pitch, but it doesn't mean my other three aren't good. You know, it, it's, I can, if I can do what I can with those other three to make the sinker a weapon um, and kind of a surprise when it comes out, uh, that's that's going to be where my strength is. So um, separating the four seam and the sinker were huge. Uh, refining slider changeup and consistency with those two pitches um, were really completing me. Um, and to be a complete pitcher in the big leagues is somebody that obviously you're handling things like the running game and all that kind of stuff a little differently. Um, but to be complete is to be able to do things a little unconventionally. Mm -hmm. um, you look at p pitch selection from some of the best and there's no rhyme or reason for a lot of it. You can't, you can't sit there and call the pitches from your couch mm -hmm. because they're doing what they know how to do and what they, they want to do with the hitter. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, we watched Nola the other day and, and he was on for the better part of the game and, um, he has no, no problem throwing his curveball, strike or ball in any count. Uh, where he wants to and, and backdoors two seam and let his four seam ride. Um, it makes it so hard when that person's not falling into a pattern with two one fastballs. And, and that's what uh, Miles okay, so Michael was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're always throwing a 1-1 off speed, you know? Yeah. And, and I think there's something he said, too. I think Miles said something to the effect of, he's like, you know, we have advanced analytics and everything like that, but there's no analytic that can tell me what goes through a, a batter's head when he's down 0-1. You know, yep. it, it just changes the, the context of the game. So, um, all right. So the more big picture, talk, talking a little bit about your in-season throwing and training programs on a five-day rotation, because there are a lot of guys that, that really struggle going from high school seven-day rotations or college seven-day rotations and going to that five-day. And, and you seem to have handled it, you know, you know, really, really well. How do you attack your, your five? So the day that the second the game ends, what are you going to? Yeah, so this is something that I've worked with over the last three, four years and really tinkered with. I've gone through periods where I've done a ton of work and then periods where I decided that I wasn't going to do much of anything. Um, and for right now, um, right after the game's done, I, I hop in there and, and immediately it's kind of, a, all right, i got to get some food in because I haven't eaten much all day. Um, I can't really seem to do that on start day. Mm-hmm. Um but for me, it's getting the weight room. Um, and it's not exactly a completely uh, taxing lift. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what you'd call more of a GPP, more of a maintenance lift. Um, but it, it's everything that we can do. You know, we get squats and lunges and, um, you know, we get our upward, upward rotation stuff and stuff to open me up when I, on a shoulder uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding out little things that I did this offseason to find out that, okay, I don't have to beat up my cuff with shoulder work after I throw because I'm naturally getting tighter because mm-hmm. of throwing. Um, so altering my arm care to where I am now opening myself up and, and doing more stretching for arm care than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, stretching and activation as opposed to strengthening. Um, that That's what changed for me. But uh, being able to lift on the day of, for me, it has been easy because I'm, I'm hyped up after the game. I'm still still running high i'm still hot i'm still warm um my joints still feel great i don't i don't have to get them going or anything um so i can hop right under the squat bar and and, um i'll be all right so the next day for me uh has i've been able to do a complete recovery day and it doesn't mean that i don't do any that i'm not doing anything but it means that everything i do has been um pushed around stretching, opening up again, and then uh, doing whatever's available to me. Um, we're really lucky in the big leagues when we have a ton of options. You know, you have um, things like the hyperbaric chamber, and we have the blood flow restri- restriction machines for uh, the bike and little things like that to, to make um, recovery a lot that much easier. But, um, you know, one thing that I've gotten into this year is, has been our uh, dry heat sauna as well as uh, uh, cold and hot tub contrast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my day after has been completely shut it down, um, stretch and, and kind of regain form for bullpen day. So you can make use of that next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so going into that next day, bullpen day, um, and that's more, and you, and you, you don't throw it all on day one, right? You're, you're off completely or you no, sorry. Play I play catch. I play okay, catch. Like it's, catch. It's, it's okay. Yeah. It's more lighter. Even if it's out to, you know, 120, 150 feet. Yeah. Um, it's light, it's easy, it's, it's you know, focus on your mechanics, uh, you know, maybe get something out that you felt last night that you wanted to iron out today because it's still fresh in your mind. Yep. Um, so a little light throwing, but mm-hmm. uh, still with intent, you yep. know, try to make every throw count as much as possible, mm-hmm. uh, even on your, even on your low days. But yep. um, so yeah, the next day, bullpen day, 
Um, and I'm more of a lighter, lighter bullpen usually. I might ramp mm-hmm. it up near the end a little bit. Um, but it's more of a work capacity day to kind of emulate that you're in that game for six, seven innings. Um, so as you get warm, get the bullpen in, then they go right to our um, cut sprints. Um, however many we've, we've decided based on where we are in the season, um, you know, our three, four week program that we kind of go up and down, take a deload uh, if we need to, but uh, sprints uh, right after, and then we go in um, to the weight room and it's much more of, like I said, work capacity. It'll be five, 10 minutes of, of hurdle work and then five minutes on the bike and then five minutes med ball work, um, sled pushes, little things like that, just to get you moving. Mm-hmm. Um, just to keep your heart rate up for, I guess it's about an hour, hour and a half, two hours of work, uh, when all is said and done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finish with some cars work. Um, lots of, lots of things to open me up, stretch me again. Um, I'm finding that that's something that I need to, to stay on top of mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of strength work. Um, so get on top of that. And then, uh, day three is very similar to day one. Uh, it's another, rest and recovery day um another light catch day um take it easy because you know i've I've come to learn that that you know it is a long season and and being healthy is everything so if it means taking it a little easier on a couple days between starts um that's that's just what i'm gonna have to do so um easy on that third day and then uh fourth day before playing catch it's uh, a little flat ground maybe i'll get on the mound for a touch feel throw a couple Mm -hmm. Uh, just to get the feel, um, and then sprint work. And if we're taking BP, I'll take BP. But if not, we'll get in there. Maybe do a couple of couple other mapping things, a couple other um, you know balance drills, little things like that, just to get yep. you kind of fired up. Um, and then day five pitch. That's where it's all, the really good message. There is finding highs and lows over your five yes. day cycle, right? So day zero is a high, day one's a low, day two's a high, day three's a low, and then. Day four is kind of a like whatever it needs to be. If I'm dragging, I can make it low key. If I'm feeling really good, yes. maybe I can, I can sprint a little bit more. Um, and I think what we've traditionally seen is we've seen a lot of guys who go out and throw and beat themselves up on day zero. Then day one, they dig the hole even deeper with a crazy lift. Day two, they throw a bullpen and then they run gassers. And then day, you know, they just they keep digging the hole deeper and deeper and they get to day four and they're just trying to get out of it. Um, I love the idea of fluctuating. It's something we used a lot. Kluber's done some similar stuff um, in the past to consolidate it. So, you know, people, people poo-poo on lifting right after a start. But when you look at like a, a classic high-low model, it's a great way to consolidate stress. Um, you know, Lance Lynn's done it in the past as well. So there, there are guys that are definitely testing the waters and some guys you don't like it. But you just got to figure out what works for you. Yeah, and it, you know, one thing for me, like you said with the high-low, um, when I'm on the mound and I'm out there, my body has not felt taxed when it comes yeah. to 6th, 7th inning, okay? Yeah, your arm's going to feel tired. Your arm's the one that's always working. But um, as far as legs go, um, I haven't had a problem with uh, keeping my legs under me the whole game. Um, yeah. You know, especially as a National League pitcher, when you're on the base sometimes, yep. you're in the base pass for sometimes 20 minutes. Uh, Dallas, Dallas had a hit the other night in lead off and ended up being out there for half an hour. Um, you need some level of conditioning, uh, to be able to, to hop right back out on the mound and execute your pitch. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, for me, the high low has been amazing because day after I used to love just getting after it in the weight room. I did long run, long lift, heavy lift, and bullpen day would be 
an explosive lift. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd be beating it up even more. And then by day three and four, I was out of commission. Um, and just trying to get it back for pitch day. So mm -hmm. um, I'm loving the high-low model, and it's allowing me to take care of a lot of the other things that I need to take care of. Absolutely. You know, it's it's funny. We have a, a saying, everybody's invincible until they're not. Like, most people don't realize until that, that until they're in their mid-30s, and you're talking about it at age 21. So it speaks volumes to, like, you know, there's a there's a guy, Dan John, in our industry, and he said, the goal is to always keep the goal as the goal. Like, you're there to play baseball at a high level, not to be a weight room rock star or set any endurance records or anything like that. Yeah, so. yeah definitely. And, and that's where that's where it took off for me this year and, and like I said, last year. Uh, always thinking that just because I ate well and I was in the weight room that I would never get hurt. But once you get hurt, um, you get that feeling of, uh-oh, you know, I, yeah. I got I to gotta switch something up. Absolutely. What about the day of a game? Um, so I know tomorrow you're pitching at noon, so a little bit of an atypical one. But walk me through what happens for a 7 o'clock game over the course of the day as it begins. Uh, I like to get up a little earlier. Uh, I still like to get my sleep, obviously. So mm -hmm. still aim for 8 to 9 hours. Uh, that night, but I like to get up a little earlier and get moving. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like if I sit around all day and do nothing, um, I, I just can't wake up. It yeah. turns into one of those lazy day feelings, and, yeah. and you can't do it. So I like to get up, and whatever that might be, if I got some, some errands to run, um, or clean the house, something, yeah. uh, just to get moving. But I try and eat as much as I can in the morning because as the day goes on, I, I'm just not concerned with eating. Yep. Um, I wouldn't say I have an overly nervous stomach, like I'm not throwing up or anything before an outing, but, um, you know, obviously it just, it, it's not on my mind. Mm -hmm. So I try and eat as much as I can and as good as I can in the morning, um, to be able to hold that later. But, um, most of the day is spent doing something, you know, pretty easy, pretty easy going other than getting out of the house and trying to do something in the morning. Um, you know, I'm a little things, I'll play, play a little guitar or I'll, uh, watch my show or something like that until it's time to go to the field and uh, I get there about three thirty or four for a seven o'clock game. And um, I've actually been hopping on the bike quick when I first get there. Mm -hmm. um, again, just to get moving, roll out a little bit. I uh, feel like my days, my day has begun. Um, and then I'll get something else to eat. Um, that's usually, usually only two meals on start day is about, is about all I can handle before mm -hmm. a game. Um, I'll try and eat again, and then uh, I got about an hour or so until uh, I have to meet with our catcher and our uh, our coaches to go over the lineups and mm -hmm. and what we're what our plans going to be and uh, little things like that. So mm -hmm. uh, meet with them, and then I go to the training room to get a little stretch, <laughs> a little stretch, heat up, and then uh, go back to the weight room, uh, do my activation stuff, so my all my shoulder activation, uh, hips, stuff like that. Um, and then I like to head out usually about 35 minutes before a game, um, run a little bit on the line and, and get throwing. Absolutely. All right. So we're, now we're going to go to kind of the lightning round. This is the, this is the fun part. Um, and sometimes it's not, it's not true lightning. It's lightning on my end. Cause I asked the <laughs> question. All right. So, uh, we share some common music interest. Um, and I, I learned about this through Ryan Flaherty. It was one day. I think you were in late to lift or something like that. It was like a Friday afternoon at 3.30 and I was lifting and Flaherty was like just about to head out and he's like, you know, Soroka loves this stuff. It was like, it might have been like some Slipknot or some Mudvayne or Hatebreed, 
But like, so you're a nice guy, but you don't hesitate to go to a really dark place with your musical selections when you want to crush big weights. So two things. First, do you listen to that stuff before you pitch or is that only a weight room thing? I do to a point and then some stuff I, I have a limit to how yeah. hard it gets. And I think I got a label just because they'll hear one song that's pretty hard and, and yeah. they assume I like it all. But mm-hmm. um, I learned that I can't do the real hard stuff before I pitch because then I go out there with too much, too much anger and I'm tight. I, I want to, I'm in fight mode as opposed yeah. to pitch mode. So um, I like to tone that down just a little bit. All right. Um, but yeah, weight room, it's crank it up. Let's go. All right, so give us some overlooked, high-quality, angry music that people wouldn't know about. Um, you know, I think there's some Alter Bridge. Right. Um, you know, and, and I know people are going to say this, but some of the uh, harder Nickelback is I was, all bad. I was literally um, – that was my next question. I said, this is your chance in a very public platform <laughs> to publicly defend your Nickelback advocacy. So state your case. Go for it. you got a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's sides of of Nickelback that weren't played, and you know they they caught a lot of heat for a couple of their big songs that got overplayed on the mm-hmm. radio. You know, Photograph, Rockstar, little things like that. But uh, on that same album, you have uh, Side of a Bullet, which is arguably one of the harder songs you could ever really um, hear. Um, and they go hand in hand with Shine Down as well. Um, Shine Down really only gets play for a lot of their. Um, more radio friendly songs. Um, but if you, if you really want to get after it, shine down altar bridge, uh, even some creed to me is, yeah. isn't, uh, all bad. That's a throwback. Um, yeah. I've been really into actually one Danish metal band called Volbeat. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they are kind of making a resurgence. Uh, are they they're huge do- over there. Yeah. We're playing it, Metallica. Yeah. Is it, it's not, is it Dutch or where are they from? I, I, uh, Denmark. Denmark. All right. There you go. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, they, they have a different sound. Uh, they're almost a little rockabilly, rockabilly in them. All right. Um, but they have a different sound and, and that's one that I love to go to. Um, but you know, I like to stay away from the more scream stuff. Yeah. I don't, I, I can't get into that. It still needs to sound melodic. It still needs to sound like music. Cause I am a music fan too. Absolutely. Um, I will listen to, uh, Kings of Leon, you know, mm-hmm. all the Pearl Jam, all the all the traditional bands as well. I'd say we're very similar, and I think we can both commiserate that today's modern hip-hop is uh, underwhelming when it comes on the radio in the weight room. Are you with me on it? Yeah, I, I can't handle it. I, I'm, uh, I can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do it. It's, it's just, to me, to me I, need, I need some sort of, uh, when I'm in the weight room, I need some sort of uh, tension or... or I don't want to say anger. That makes yeah. me sound like an angry person, but <laughs> I need something. I need something aggressive. I think that's a better that's a better term to put it in. Whether it's even then the nineties hip hop, there's some aggressive nineties yeah. uh, hip hop that I, that gets you up. But yeah, yeah it's not it's not just talking. Good. They don't and they don't announce themselves at the start of a song. <laughs> no, I, I yeah, I can't. I can't right. do the stuff today. It takes a while for me. All right, so uh, what advice would you give to a teenage Mike Soroka? Oof. You know, I, I really, and this is something that I pride myself on, um, was trying to have as few regrets as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that for me is, is, it goes back to being able to say, I don't know if I'd change a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously some things where uh, I'd pay attention a little more 
um, in school, that would have been one thing, one thing for me, I think, um, my focus was set elsewhere for a lot of it. Um, you know, but I was lucky to be able to go to a school that essentially taught myself, um, throughout high school, um, to be able to move at my own pace with baseball travel and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, if one thing it would have been to take school a little more seriously, mm-hmm. um, because I, I felt like I could have hit hit a learning curve with, um, you know, being able to learn things from books, um, until I really didn't start doing until this last off season, I was trying to get back into reading. And, and I, I think I was always just hard headed because, you know, they sat you down and said, you have to read this book. And I mm-hmm. said, well, I don't want to read that book, you know, uh, just to be a little rebellious, but, um, I wish I'd taken pride in, in school a little more. Um, and, uh, you know, some things that could have opened up doors elsewhere. That's all. Awesome, man. There's a, there's a saying I just heard from the founder of AngelList. He said, um, read what you love until you love to read. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Nice. That's, that's one thing that's come, come a long ways for me last year. boy. All right, what's more important, stuff or command? Ooh. <laughs> I, obviously, a lot of people are going to want me to say command. Um, and I think without command, you can't be good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like stuff is also undervalued from guys with elite command. Yep. Um, you know, I feel like just because he's not blowing up the radar, uh, people think that Hendricks Liam, or, um, Kyle Hendricks doesn't have stuff. Oh, he's got elite um, stuff. <laughs> exactly. And that, that's where I, I don't think a lot of people truly understand is they don't, they, they classify him as as Greg Maddox, and they say, "Okay, Greg Maddox was command. That's how he that's how he got his strikeouts. That's how he got his stuff." And I said, "Okay, yes, but um, nobody had a two seam move like that, yeah. and he also had a really really good curveball." People forget also um, he threw really hard when he came up. <laughs> Maddox actually yeah, had a, real, a really good velocity. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's um, people don't quite understand that just because. The velocity isn't exactly the same. Um, doesn't make stuff good. Um, so I feel like that that's kind of a kind of a loaded question, depending on how you look yeah. at it. Um, because I feel like all big leaguers have good stuff. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's just constant across the board. But I think what separates is command. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's just it depends on how you want to look at it. If you don't know what you're doing with your stuff, you're never going to be that successful. Stuff gets you there. Um, command keeps you there. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's a much more fair assessment and stuff's going to get you looks. Um, but that, that uh, it's not, it's not going to make or break things. If, um, your stuff isn't considered absolutely elite. Um, if you could command the ball and get out, um, you're going to move as well. But, um, yeah, the combination of both of them is what makes, Pitchers elite. All right. Favorite teammate of all time and why? Uh, <laughs> this is a tough one, so you can pick a couple if you want to. Yeah, I haven't exactly had uh, too much time with a bunch of different guys because the like, same organization I came up with. Um, but for me, uh, my guy that I'll always go to is Colby Allard. Uh, mm-hmm. He and I came up very much the same. Um, and our mental attitude on the mound is very similar. Um, we see a lot of things that, uh, in different lights that, you know, when you, you kind of get that thought in your head that pops into your mind about something funny or, 
uh, someone did something or said something that, that you thought was interesting, I know he's thinking the same thing. Um, so I've always been able to uh, relate to him on, on that level. Um, and, you know, he's a guy that I, I've been able to learn from as well. Um, but I think right now it, it's got to be Ryan McCann. I was going to say, um, I, fig- I figured he was going to be in the discussion. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, everybody says it. And that's all we heard when uh, he first signed back here and, and how much, you know, so everybody says, oh, you're going to love BMAC. You're going to, he's amazing. And you're kind of thinking, yeah, I'm sure, but. You know, how amazing. And <laughs> once you get a good feel for who he is every single day and how he's the same guy um, and, you know, how he, how he's able to flip a switch, really, because um, he's a competitor. He's a, He competes with the best of them when it matters I mean, when it's in there. And I think that's the look that he's got from um, people that watch him play baseball is that he's just intense. He sees this. Um, he wants to win. He want, He'll do everything to win. And ultimately, that's the best teammate you can have is a guy that will run through walls for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no doubt with that with him. But, um, you know, when it's time to, to take it easy, take a bus ride or uh, get on the plane, you know, he's the one he's the one generating all the laughs. He's the one uh, out there. Um, you know, he's able to have fun with everybody. He doesn't you can tell he doesn't treat people differently just because of where they are. Um you know, everybody's everybody's a teammate to him, and and that's ultimately what's brought us together this year. I feel like, and um, without him, we're a very different team. Absolutely. All right, last question, and I'm actually excited to hear your answer. What pitchers do you like to watch, and why? Um, <laughs> my guy is Max Scherzer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's been the guy over the last uh, few years, I guess, to where he's been just kind of on a different level um, in a different headspace than a lot of pitchers. Mm-hmm. Um, Kershaw was obviously one of the first to be able to, to maintain that intensity and yeah. be good every single day uh, for so many years. And um, he was always a lot of fun to watch. Um, but I think Max just took it to another level. Yeah. Um, because one thing that, that I heard this year that really made sense to me um and it's basically saying, all right, if you're navigating lineup, you're navigating, um, you know, the course of a game, you have seven, eight innings, 100, 110 pitches. Um, how many of those pitches are you complete intent with? Mm-hmm. And the goal is every single one of them. And he's the guy that emulates that to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's the guy that, it doesn't mean that he's trying to throw every fastball as hard as he can. Mm-hmm. Um, but he decides what he wants to do with that pitch and he doesn't look back. Yeah. You, know, you can see that. And I think that's what messes with a lot of hitters is that he's just working on an, on another level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's ultimately the level that you, that I want to get to. Yeah. Um, that's the one that everybody sees and says, wow, like yeah. even on his days, you don't know you don't know when he's feeling it and, and being able to talk to him and, and talk about, you know, I was, I was feeling this on this day and said, wow, didn't, didn't show it, you know? Yeah. Um, little things like that, that the hitters are going up there almost with an attitude that, you know what, maybe I'll just try tomorrow. Um, and that's something that you get to as a pitcher that very few have, um, and that sounds like what Pedro Martinez had or Randy Johnson. It was just guys just didn't yeah. 
you got to you guys got to train a lot to, together this this spring in January and February at CSP. Did you get a chance to talk to him very much? Uh, not too much. No, I think we were, a lot of our schedules were a little separate, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I got to at least see the way that he approaches every single day. Yeah, and you can tell that um, you can tell that he understands the value of um, being the same guy every single day. Um, I think a lot of people imagine and, and think of what it would be like to be in a situation with, um, I mean, he's the ace of aces, mm-hmm. um, a guy with a whole ton of money, a good life, uh, objectively. Yeah. Um, but for him, what he takes pride in is is being him every single day and, and ultimately trying to get better. Um, he's trying to get better just like anybody else. He's not just trying to stick and maintain um, and I think in some respects he is getting better, which mm-hmm. is scary. Yeah. <laughs> you um, know, that's, that's yeah. where you see what the run he went on. I think it was last, the last, last month, yeah, June. um, yeah. yeah, while, while probably dealing with, um, it, whatever it was, rhomboid or lower trap. Um, that's, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's something that that's somebody that if anybody's got it figured out, it's him. And he's admitting that he doesn't have it figured out. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what goes a long ways and, and that's what keeps you humble. Yeah. And it, it piggybacks a little bit on some of the stuff we talked about earlier is actually during the broadcast, I think it was actually last night's game. Um, one of the, the Braves beat reporter read a quote from the all-star game where he talked about loving to face Freddie Freeman from Freddie Freeman's the best. And you always want to compete against the breast because it, it brings the best out in, in, in who you are. And you, you literally just said that, you know, 45 minutes ago and you're talking about playing against, you know, pro players down in, uh, you know, your trip to the U S with your team Canada. Like there's, there's something to be said about seeking out challenges and, you know, and even putting yourself in a position where failure is a very real possibility. Yeah, no, exactly. And that, that's one point that you get to, um, and you realize that even when you're overmatched, you say, okay, so what he's supposed to beat me. And if he does, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and you realize that when you're in situations where you're facing the best, you want to show them what you have. Um, you know, and for me, that was a situation with Miguel Cabrera, uh, my first big league camp, I guess, two years ago. Um, and realizing that, all right, I'm, I'm coming after you. And he sees that too. And I to get that little acknowledgement when I, I think I put two of my best pitches right on the black on the outside corner. Um, you know, and to kind of get that look from him that, you know, I, I see you, I see you getting after it. That's what means the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he doesn't want to see somebody just give in just because of who he is. Uh, he wants competition too. Absolutely. Um, so I feel like if you're always out there yeah, and you want the best, uh, that's ultimately when you're going to rise to be the best. That's awesome, man. That's a good thing to, to wrap up on. So um, folks can find you. It's at Mike underscore Soroka 28 <laughs> on Twitter. It's at Mike Soroka underscore on Instagram. Um, thanks so much for doing this, man. This is a lot of fun. I learned a lot too. So it was, it was Yeah, great. me too. So, Always fun with you, Eric, no matter what man. it is. Nice. I'm glad we recorded this one. We've had enough podcast conversations that didn't become <laughs> podcasts. So um, best of luck the rest of the way, man. And thank you for taking the time. Okay. Thank you so much, Eric. Anytime. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.